this week on the podcast talking about donor-advised funds, the billions of dollars earmarked for nonprofits. This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. Today's guest is none other than Sue Schwartzman, principal at Schwartzman Advising. How's it going, Sue? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Well, I'll preface this by saying I am super curious about this topic of donor-advised funds, and I know so little about it, which is why I'm so excited to have you, because you actually specialize in helping families use wealth to achieve uh, you know, purpose and potential, but in my mind, that's like helping rich folks give more money to nonprofits, which is, which is what I'm curious about today. And that is a part of what I do, get the money out the door. But there's there's more to it than that. <laughs> Are you saying that I may have over wildly oversimplified what you do? <laughs> Me? There's just so many facets to working with families of wealth. Um, and, and getting the money out the door is certainly certainly one of them. Great. Can you walk us through a high level of what your work entails just to give some flavor to the audience? Sure. So... Typically, people come to me because they are concerned about um, their kids. How will their kids succeed in life? How they just basically don't want to raise spoiled children. And how when they're surrounded by wealth, some people were not raised themselves with wealth. They made their wealth. And they're really concerned about how their kids will turn out. Or people that were inheritors were concerned about the lifestyle they might have led. Um, or they looked at some of the things that parents did well in creating them and things that they want to change. They come to me to talk about how to do that. Well, that's nice and succinct. Uh, I mean, high class problems, but certainly uh, problems nonetheless. And it is of particular interest to me because of the rise of something called DAFs. And in order to understand this better, Sue, can you kind of tell us what a DAF is? How much money is involved? What they look like? Sure. So DAF stands for Donor Advised Fund, and the way I explain a donor advised fund is it's it's a philanthropic savings account. They are held at all the major uh, financial institutions: Goldman Sachs, Fidelity, and also community foundations. Um, they all have them. And it's a service that they offer their donors. It's a service that I actually personally appreciate that we have one. And um, most of my clients um, have one as well. And the idea is you put that money into this donor advised fund. And uh, when you do that, the assets become um, irrevocable. They, are they will always be for philanthropic purpose. You cannot take them back. And they get housed at, it's like giving the assets to whatever institution you're giving it to. So let's say you're giving it to the Minneapolis Community Foundation. They're, they have a DAF program and you give your assets to them and you start a DAF there. The assets become technically theirs. So you actually get the tax benefits right away when you do that. And there's so many reasons um, tax-wise to do that, to think about that. But also the DAF, it's... um. I consider it the most convenient way to give because the institution you give the money to helps you track all of your donations. They write all the checks for you. They um, give you 
all the, they give you opportunities to invest that money. Um, it's kind of like a, like a set it and forget it. Uh, hopefully you don't forget it because I talk about systems, but you set it and it just happens. It's one of the systems you put in place to give money. Gotcha. Now, for some people listening, you may be thinking, uh, sure, this is like an edge case. How much money could really be involved? I, I really want to impress upon people how much freaking money is involved here. Uh, can you give me some high-level numbers based, uh, based on what you have? Sure. We're talking about 2017 here. Of course, 2018 numbers aren't out right out yet. And giving as a whole in 2017 was up about 5%. And that's basically due to the economy. And there's some projections about 2019, but we're not going to get in there. Uh, 2019, but we're not going to get in there yet. But for DAFs, there were um, of all individual giving, which is 70% of all the money given, which is about $410 billion dollars given last year, which is the highest number we've ever seen, 70% of that's given by individuals. And of that 70%, 10% came from donor advised funds. That's about $27 billion came from donor advised funds. That's a lot of money. Um, and on top of that, how much, you know, sort of is, is being contributed? You said, you know, you recommend it. It's a set it and forget it. Um, is this, you know, in just in general, the amount of money in DAFs, is that a number that's increasing? You know, how much, you know, can you put a number on? So, George, I took back the set it and forget it comment. <laughs> <laughs> Officially um, rejected. A very convenient way to give because, again, they, they keep track. So if you get a notice like, hey, have you given the money to um, the Red Cross like you usually do? Or I haven't seen your donation for 2017. You get on your donor advice fund. It's an online process. And you see, oh, yeah, I gave it in November. Yes, I did. I don't need to give that donation right now. So it's a, it's a very convenient way to give. So I took back the set it and forget it. But you have <laughs> some questions about, about um, the payouts. So some of the recent... Um, I will say controversy or press about the donor advised funds, the criticisms are that that money is sitting there. These large assets are sitting there not doing the intentional work of making the society better. So the other side of that, the other way that I look at it, actually DAFs have a pay, had a payout rate in 2017 of 22%. So 22% of the money you put in your, in your, on an average, that went into your philanthropic savings account, 22% was given out last year. And this is, if you compare it to um, family or corporate foundations, which is another giving vehicle, they, by law, have to give out 5%. That's all they have to give out. But with donor advised funds, there are no laws that govern how quickly you have to give out the money. So you may be thoughtful um, and maybe saving your philanthropic savings for some big investment, or you might have a system to give it out regularly. The goal for every family that I work with is to make sure they have a system in place to regularly look at those assets, decide who they are, what they care about, what they want to do for the world, and how they can best get that money out the door. Yeah, a lot to unpack here. And just to put a number on the amount just quote-unquote sitting there, uh, the number I have is like $110 billion sitting there in, in donor-advised funds. Billions of dollars, right? They're, they're, they're sitting there. And this is, you know, this is the critique of saying, like, wait a minute, let's put that money to work right now. Uh, and I, I want to put a pin in that and, and come back to actually your area of expertise and the reason I want to do this, I, I want our listeners to get in this mindset. Like you can be angry, you can, you know, throw your hands in the air, or you can get in the mindset 
of these individuals and their children who are inheriting vast sums of donor-advised fund wealth to be given. So, you know, Sue, can you walk us through how you approach the the way that you advise uh, families and, and these staffs in terms of how do I find a nonprofit? What am I looking for? How does that sort of guide me in my purpose and, and, and potential to use your words? So there's a saying in the philanthropy world, you work with one philanthropic family, you work with one philanthropic family. Every family I work with is so different. So I'll take one example in my head to answer your question. So one family I'm working with um, right now, uh, the, the mom is my client. She herself is an inheritor as well as an earner, which actually most inheritors are also earners too. They want to make their own name and their own living. Um, so she came to me because she was worried that her millennial uh, kids who are in their 20 to 28 range in age um, didn't know anything about philanthropy or giving. And so she wanted to, she had in her mind to create some sort of family giving program or learning. So she came to me. And so we are in our uh, end of our second year, we're beginning our third rotation in that. And for me, it's all about learning. It's bringing these young people together to find out who they are through some values exercises. What are their shared values? And what might that mean um, in terms of their intentions for good work for the world? Last year together, so for me too, it's about learning. So if you're just starting out in the philanthropic field, uh, you need kind of a navigator to, or, or at least to spend some thoughtful time thinking about who you are, what you care about, and how you want to get those those uh, assets out there. And so for this group that I'm working with, we first studied um, the environment. That's something that they were really interested in. And we looked at many organizations doing work both uh, nationally and abroad. And this year we're studying um, human rights. And we study them. I bring them nonprofits. I taught them how to look and value nonprofits using things like GuideStar and some basic principles of looking at budgets and do they make sense and and who else is supporting these nonprofits and are they likely to get the work done that they say they're going to get done. So there's some basic things you do when you're looking at nonprofits to make sure they are valid and good and that they have a um, um, a status, the government status that makes them a nonprofit. But once you do that, there are so many good ones out there. It's a matter of choosing and making sure they match your values and do exactly what it is you want to do in terms of getting good work out in the world. Okay. I'm going to do a dangerous thing, which is George translation. It sounds like, you know, step one is make sure you have a clean bill of health that, you know, you have your, you know, organization properly configured, set up, rated, and, you know, judged and listened, uh, listened to by the, the folks like GuideStar. Uh, and then sort of like, it seems like I'm getting the attention of people like yourself or researchers that say basically to a question, who are the leaders? What is the smartest work being done? Who is the most effective in insert cause here? Is that a brutally simple but almost accurate assessment? That's pretty accurate. I stay away from things like who is getting the most work done or having the best outcomes because so many nonprofits are doing great work and um, how you determine the best. I mean, it's a, it's a value system based on what your goal is. You know, if, if you're most concerned about your local geographic area and human trafficking, maybe there's one organization that's doing great work in that area to combat human trafficking, but it's maybe not the national lead. So it's just making sure, just doing some basic due diligence. It's that it should be expected of everyone giving any dollars anywhere. 
it should be basic due diligence. Of course. And just to push you, though, uh, you know, I I do. Let's go with environment, right? You end up with, you know, regionally specific efforts. You end up with, you know, global efforts like, you know, Greenpeace. Uh, How, you know, once you've done the diligence, you come back with a list. How are these families sort of going about the, the judging of nonprofits? Are they checking out the website? Are they sort of stalking them, so to speak? What is that next phase of, all right, we know that this is a viable organization, sound financials, the money is going toward what it should. What does that next level look like as that relationship builds? Because it seems like there's like so many layers, so many layers between, you know, the, that nonprofit, nonprofit fundraising professional and the person making that decision. Again, basic due diligence is one thing, and then you're safe to give. I don't want anyone paralyzed from giving because we make the process too complicated. Just get the, you know, do some due diligence. GuideStar is the easiest way. Get the money out the door. For the families that I work with that are engaged in more, um, in deeper learning, both together around their values, around issues, we really look at what is the nonprofit doing? What are they actually doing? We have conversations with the nonprofit professionals. We talk to them about how they're raising funds. We talk to them about um, the amount that we're looking at giving and how how they can make use of this. Um, we, t- we, we have those deeper level conversations and then choices are made. Mm-hmm. So there's actual, it's not like a, you know, a random check from the Silicon Valley Community Trust just shows up in your door and you're like, where did this money come from? This is delightful. What is going on? Sometimes it is that. I, where I was working prior to this, we had one donor who, who um, we didn't even know she felt very connected. She gave us a donation of about, I don't know, $150 a year for probably 50, 60 years and we didn't know that when that we were in her will. And so when she passed away, she left the organization a million dollars. So you just don't know. You just don't know. And all money is good money, you know, coming to a nonprofit. So sometimes it just arrives at your doorstep. And otherwise, um, nonprofit professionals, I encourage them to be engaged with, with donors that want to be engaged with them. Oh, man, so much to unpack here. One, you know, part of it is like... I get a little frustrated with sometimes that narrative because I think about how much, you know, could have been done with that money over time, how much more that particular donor could have been involved with the organization and guiding it rather than like, here's a lottery ticket that just came from somebody that you like overlooked um, and maybe shouldn't. Uh, Maybe the narrative of the story here is, by the way, treat anybody who's giving you regular donations as that, you know potential, you know, high net worth donor. All donors have this value. I don't know what to take away from this. Tell me what to take away from this. Well, I happen to agree with you. That's one of my principles. You you don't know. I I have a whole background in youth philanthropy too. And um, I believe that you do not know the potential of any human being that you who, who comes in contact with you. And so I treat them all with respect, the dignity of possibility. You just don't know. So I agree with you on that one. That's you and I thinking alike there. Yeah. Yeah. And like, obviously your, your work is definitely needed as we're, we're talking about one of the largest transfers of wealth in general in history, right? Between one generation and the rising generation. And on top of that, one of the largest transfers of wealth in terms of uh, donor advised funds, these, this, this responsibility basically inherited in this trust to give money. And suddenly it's a whole entire job that some people like work their entire lives at and there's 
you know, real, uh, really like amazingly uh, intense implications. Like you could basically have a young person inherit, you know, millions of dollars inside of the staff and this responsibility. And suddenly they look at this tiny, you know, organization down the street that they volunteered with. It deals with puppies. They're super cute. Mm -hmm. They write them a $2 million check and it, you know, quintuples their budget. And then they don't support them the following year. This organization then hires a bunch of people with that money, expecting that there's going to be continued support because rational people do, uh, you know, multi-year support grants. And then that person gets a little older and it's like, you know what? I don't like puppies anymore. And that organization goes out of business. Like, I feel like that's a narrative that kind of scares me about this. So I want to say two things about it. I believe all of the organizations that have donor advised fund programs also have a staff of philanthropic advisors. And the community foundations have a staff as well. They're experts in different fields, whether your interest is in um, animal animal um, cruelty, preventing animal cruelty, whatever it is, that most of these organizations have a staff that knows something about that. If such a large grant comes through the, the mill, comes through the process, that without a relationship with that person, I would be surprised, first of all. And second, these organizations, this staff will call them and say, hey, what do you, what, you know, this, I saw this really large donation coming through. <laughs> talk about what you're thinking. And you said something really important. Um, it's important that your donation does more good than harm. If you have a, a donor that wants to give um, such a large donation to an organization and has either a script on it that says, I want it only used for this. And it changes what the organization's intentions and maybe new strategic plan was. That's not a great gift. In fact, some organizations will reject that gift and rightly so. So you have to be sure. And with advisors help, if you're giving that size of gifts, you have an advisor again, um, that your gift will do more good than harm. You don't want to overwhelm an organization. Sometimes people give gifts in stages, three-year stages. If they want to really support an organization long-term, we recommend three-year grants in differing um, level, differing amounts. So you can make sure that the, the organization is set to use that money well this year and the next year. And the best kind of grant making is when you actually, even if you have an evaluation and things didn't go well with your first with your first amount of money, first installment, you're in conversation or your advisor's in conversation with this organization to find out, hey, what didn't go well? How can we think about that? Do you want to use the money for this instead? What do you really need? A new computer? You know, what do you need? So that's just another way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, the earmarked funds is a, you know, a notorious evil in, in the sector. And I think anyone who's ever received one of those sort of designated uh, grants knows that it's, uh, you know, all that glitters is rarely gold in that in that sense. When it comes to making this shift, right, because like right now, right, I can probably with some reasonable estimate say that if you have a thousand donors currently giving, you know, a hundred to five hundred dollars to your organization, 1% of them has 99% of the wealth. That's, you know, that's a, that's a U.S. distribution. How do I think about shifting or making an ask that says, look, we're an organization ready for a, you know, a six-figure investment? I know, you know, group of donors, like, we've been doing this sort of, like, $100 thing on the side. 
How do you sort of help a nonprofit make that sort of much larger ask, deliver that vision, say, no, 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 we're ready to 10x what we're doing and here's the plan? So my best advice for that comes out of a study that was actually done in 2013 by an organization called 2164 in the Johnson Center for Philanthropy at Grand Valley State, who analyzed research on next-gen donors, and the, the, the report was called Respecting Legacy, Revolutionizing Philanthropy. And they basically asked some high-capacity I don't know the exact number of people. I said some. They asked a, a respectable number of next-gen donors, high-capacity donors, um, several questions. And what they learned is that this generation differs from other generations in a cluster in three different areas. They don't want to just be check, check writers. They have a hunger for engagement of some level and for new ways of learning. And they're really about the importance of now. Like they don't want to wait until they're retired to make an impact on the world. They have there's importance of now is really big to them. So I would say in answer to your question, nonprofits should think about ways to get people involved and engaged on meaningful levels. So when you change, when you're about to launch something new that you have the capacity to institute, you have people in the pipeline that have been with you engaged that actually see that. And so it's a matter of going to them and just continue the cultivation that already existed. Yeah, uh, we'll be putting that in the show notes for sure, uh, because it sounds like a really great way of thinking about your engagement strategies. And you know what what you know what kind of concerns me is in in a lot of our advising uh, and the work we do at Whole Whale. You know, we're helping organizations build that email list, build those relationships, and then get people to, you know, give once a year. But, you know, we're talking about $100, $500, maybe $1,000 things coming over online. And what I worry about is that it sort of stops there, that you mm-hmm. don't think about the fact that there's another level that you could play at, another tier of communication that it seems like you need to engage or at least uh, make your audience aware of? I would say that no matter how technically advanced our society gets, there is a craving for connection and direct communication and involvement. And it's all about when life boils down to it, whether you're a nonprofit professional trying to be fundraising for your organization or you're a parent worried about how you're going to raise your kids, it is all about relationships. And pick up the phone. If people don't answer the phone, get an engagement technique plan that will get people in your building seeing what you're doing caring about it long term it's got to be about relationship building and i think some relationships start um, with technology and could stay there and linger there for a long time but if you want to make that jump from what you were saying a, a organization that's ready to make the leap to the really larger donors donations and impact that they want to make you got to build the relationships. You got to have the foundation of relationships built before you get there. This public service announcement brought to you by none other than Sue Schwartzman. You can tell her intensity because she's just banging on her desk. Um, <laughs> this is awesome, um, and I and I agree. And this is why we had you on. Uh, I want to switch gears to a pro versus con game of the topic: Are DAFs a good thing or bad thing? Which side would you like, Sue? Uh, you can tell. It's a good thing. Yeah, okay, you're going DAFs, good thing. So that means I will be taking a bad thing. Would you like to go first or second? Oh, okay. I see how this works. Um, I will let you go first. 
As previously mentioned, DAFs are currently the holders of around $110 billion thereabouts of financial assets that could literally be put to work today, except they're not. They're sitting there in account helping the stock market do whatever it's doing. Oh, I hear taking you. notes. <laughs> I am taking notes. I hear you on that $110 billion of assets sitting there, as you say. What, what I, I think is missing in that argument is when you invest your dollars into a DAF, when it goes to that organization, they are being invested in investment pools that are making money, that are making more money to give away. And I would also say that most people who, who start DAFs, they do it when something unique happens. They have a liquidity event. They are inheriting money. They are having a birthday and they want to make, they want to rethink about their purpose in life. So when they do that, um, they have a place to actually rest the money until they can figure out a smart philanthropic strategy. Otherwise, if you don't do it that way, if you don't have a place like the savings account, um, people that have assets, you depend on them remembering during a very busy year to give it out. And that might not happen. Whereas when you set up a DAF, those funds are irrevocably going to good in the world. And it's not relying on someone's memory or uh, desire for an action and ability to take that action at any one time. So you make a good point, clearly. Uh, in the case of a liquidation event, you know, alternatively, what would happen is that money would go to taxes. Some of those taxes go toward good things, some of them toward bad things. On the good side, I'm sure there are many, uh, you know, let's say school districts that wouldn't mind increased taxes on these liquidity events. I'm going to park that because that's a, you know, a higher, that's a higher conversation. Yeah. I want to come back to DAFs though, and the fact that money works. Every dollar does a thing. If you have your money currently sitting in a bank account, that bank is using it for X, Y, and Z purposes. If your money inside of a DAF is sitting in sort of inside of market tracking funds, some of those market tracking funds are inside of guess what? Oil companies. They're mm -hmm. inside of alcohol purveyors. Inside of people making sure that more teens can vape. Now you take $100,000 of your multi-million dollar thing and you say, I want to help the environment. Are you kidding me? You have millions of dollars working against this purpose. Your turn. So, yeah. So for me, it's all about intentions. And most of these institutions that, that I work with where these DAFs are placed offer social impact investing options for your DAFs. And sometimes they're just screened um, options. So if you're an environmentalist, these these investments are environmentally screened to make sure um, they are not dealing with coal producers or in, environmental polluters in some way. So there are these screens. So you can ask for these socially social impact funds, but you should know. And just as all of us have investments, um, we try to watch, right? And, and my personal, my personal financial advisor knows how I feel about investments in oil or whatever. And they, they help me with that. But the same, you gotta pay attention. You gotta have intention, both with the financial assets you are using on a day to day basis for your life and your philanthropic assets. Pay attention. The other thing that puts DAFs in the win column for me is that a donor advice fund is, and can be a vehicle for families to begin to do philanthropy together. So I work with some cousins on one fund, some siblings on another. 
fund and they come together and decide together where funds go. And also a misconception about DAFs is that they're only for the wealthy. It's not true. You can start a DAF with as little as $5,000. And um, I've had many teenagers start DAFs as a way to begin their philanthropic savings account. Well, I'd want to see the data on where DAF money actually is. Totally respect the social, uh, you know, the social investment portfolios. We've had people on the podcast who've talked about that. I want to come back around to my final biggest concern about DAFs, private interest, personal motivation and giving. It is totally fine, as you pointed out, when that motivation is the world is getting warmer. I think that's a bad thing. The environment is a good place to put my money. I think it's a perfectly fine thing, too, when you say there's a rare disease that seems to be tracking against the DNA that I happen to have a carrier for. That's delightful. Support organizations like the Michael J. Fox, uh, Michael, F Michael J. Fox Foundation for, for, for Parkinson's. I was recently made aware of like, you know, certain organizations uh, and also individuals that are, you know, now high net worth individuals sitting in rooms where they're talking about things like life extension, things that are more personally related to saying, I want to live longer. I'm going to give to a nonprofit that focuses on life extension work and things that directly benefit me, not the 99% thoughts. <laughs> that life extension stuff freaks me out, first of all. <laughs> Category of that freaks me out. Okay. And I have to say that, you know, in, in anything, in religious organizations or uh, there's fanatics and in, in, in corporate life, there's always the, the misdoer who's doing something crazy. So, I do not think that that is the majority of people that are trying to do good in the world, but I think that fringe is out there and, you know, it also kind of freaks me out. Right. But so does, <laughs> so does giving my money to the government all the time. I'm not sure that that's <laughs> it either. So yeah, I hear you. That freaks me out too. I don't think it's the norm. Any other points that you want to make? George, there are two more things that put DAFs in the win column for me. One is that regardless of if I personally financially have a good year or a terrible year, the nonprofits that I give to every year can still count on my donation because it's in the donor advised fund. And once I gave that in my flush years and I gave that money, it became that charitable asset never to be returned. So even if I have a bad year, those assets are there to give the nonprofits so they can count on me in terms of budgeting. It's really an important point and it allows for consistency for nonprofits. Okay. This has been another round of pro versus con. I don't feel like we've reached a reasonable conclusion, but those are the thoughts that were tumbling through my brain. You're so funny. I think we concluded that I won that one. <laughs> And in conclusion, the guest always wins. Don't you understand how this game is played? Okay. Before we move into our rapid-fire round, this has been delightful. Sue, are there any other things that you would like to share with our audience as they think about their strategies for going after these DAFs? Going after these DAFs. So I would say, too, that it is important that nonprofit institutions make friends with the um, philanthropic advisors of all these institutions that have DAFs. Make yourself known and aware. Encourage institutions that have DAFs to offer donor education initiatives that would bring them in the room, them being the nonprofits, to bring you 
the nonprofit into the room on a panel. So people can people giving out money that are interested in learning more about an issue have the opportunity to do so. Some of this could be online learning. Some of this could be um, websites that are sent out in a donor advice fund newsletter. But use those people that are that are there to advise. Make sure they know who you are and what you're doing. That one piece of advice may make more organizations more money than any other podcast that I've ever had. So well done. That's a great freaking thought. Um, okay, rapid fire. Please keep your answers as short as possible in the realm of 30 seconds as we go through rapid fire. Are you ready, Sue? I hope so. What is one tech tool or website that you've started using in the last year that you absolutely love? Zoom conferencing. Talk about a mistake that you made earlier in your career that now shapes the way you do things today. Don't have one. You've never, I'm pushing you on this one. You've never made a mistake early in your career? That shapes, sure, I've made mistakes, but that shapes the way I think about things now. The philanthropy field, look, when I got into the philanthropy field 20 years ago, there was no philanthropy field. We were all growing up in the field and creating what, what what's known today. So there were lots of mistakes made, but I'm not sure if anything truly shapes the way I think about think about it. You learn from it and you grow, but things are changing so fast that I, I can't think of an example of that. What is coming in the next year that has you the most excited? So it's a personal thing, but um, I am collaborating, writing some children's books on, um, on giving that I'm hoping reach the market in the next year. Do you believe nonprofits can successfully go out of business? Yes. It depends on what issue they're working on, but I'm hopeful, but I'm a very positive person. If I were to toss you in the hot tub time machine and bring you back to when you first created um, Schwartzman Advising, what advice would you give yourself? Well, I have to say that um, much of the field has emerged in the last decade, and I started prior to that. I've been in the field for about 20 years, so much of what we were doing was learning as we go and taking people one step ahead of us um, for advice. And one of the things that I would take back or do differently is we used to teach when we were teaching about philanthropy that one of the markers of a good nonprofit was anyone that had 10% overhead or less. And actually we were teaching that the lower the overhead, the better the nonprofit. We later learned that that really was not one of the criteria to judge a good nonprofit and that so much went into that overhead number. Some included fundraising, some didn't. Um, so we also learned that sometimes a higher cost of employees actually meant that you had more serious long-term effective people in place. So again, that probably wasn't a great marker. So we've since switched that and took that out of the narrative of what makes a great nonprofit. What is something that you think you should stop doing? I don't know if I should stop doing it, but it's hard. I, I am, I think, and I overthink and I overanalyze before I give advice to any of my clients. And it's just so freaking time consuming. And I, I really agonize sometimes over, um, over things I, things I say or do because there's so much information out there. And I just want to make sure that I have it all before I help people make decisions. If you had a magical Harry Potter style wand that you could wave across the nonprofit industry, what would it do? If I had this nonprofit wand, what I would really do is every time anyone signs a job contract, I would ask them to, uh, I would make it 
So they also have to decide how much they want to give away automatically from their salary each there. Are they one percenters? Are they 10 percenters? What are they? And then I would wish that every company or I would, this is my, my thoughts so of what happened. Every company would have someone that um, met with every employee every year to ask whether one percent or 10 percent they wanted it to go and they would help do the research for them. And the company would match those funds. That's what I want to do to make it automatic. How did you get started in the social impact space? The career found me. I did not find it. I am a teacher by trade. I taught junior high and high school and middle and uh, junior college. And I ended up creating a curriculum when I was teaching middle school that was a philanthropy curriculum matching state standards for English and social studies. And uh, what I found when I was teaching this curriculum, that when you give kids the opportunity to do good in the world, they don't walk, they run. And they reach both... Um, educational heights and philanthropic heights that no one could imagine. This one school I was working at with the project was giving away $40,000 a year, most of which the kids raised. And then I had a philanthropist match it. So then I went from there. The Jewish community picked me up to create a high school program. I, I created the Jewish Teen Foundation, did that for uh, 10 years, handed that off. That's still running. And then I started working with families and love the fact when you get multiple generations around a table, the interactions and learning that happens between generations and how it strengthens families just drives me. So that's how I got to where I am today. What advice would you give college graduates currently looking to enter the social impact sector? Intern. Intern early before you graduate. Um, also, think about... Um, Think about it's, it's always good to think about areas you're passionate about, but more about what is your skill set that you would bring to a nonprofit and find small nonprofits that need that that skill set that you have to bring. And I always suggest people start by volunteering um, and think about think about bringing any of your cross sector knowledge to a nonprofit. All right. Final hardball question, Sue. Are you ready? Hope so. How do people find you? How do people help you? <laughs> you can find me at schwartzmanadvising.com. Well, this has been so helpful. Uh, what a fun conversation. A little bit different than our normal pieces, but I personally was taking notes because I, I run an organization called Power Poetry, and we're always hustling and, and thinking about the landscape of how do we you know, get that next dollar and then get that next user and get that next poet. And, like, you know, it's um, – it's interesting to hear it from your side of the fence. You know, we didn't even touch on the youth philanthropy potential markets and the giving circle potential markets for nonprofits. That's a whole nother conversation, but they are growing and uh, should not be overlooked. Oh, boy. You hear that, everybody? If you uh, if you're interested, maybe we'll have you on uh, again if our if our listeners reach out and, and harass me. That'd be great. This was fun. Thank you, Sue. Have a great day. Go get that money out there. Get it working. Do it. <laughs> no. Now. Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast and consider following us on Twitter at Whole Whale. And thanks for joining us. If you've been listening for a while, I would like to ask that you check out our podcast on iTunes and leave us a rating or leave us a rating on any platform that you're listening to us on. Uh, it sadly helps more than you could possibly realize, which is why everybody always asks for them. And that's where I find myself right now. Please leave us a rating. Thanks. This week, and frankly, every week's 
podcast music from the one and only gregthomasmusic.org. Greg Thomas is a great source of custom music. The guy's great. He also does podcast editing. We miss you, Greg.